Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Well, my name is Sean Wadiemi. Most people know me as Sean, but I prefer Sean, if you can pronounce that. <laughs> Well, I'd want to say that can be very, very difficult, right? So she's a Christian wanting to spend her money in distinctly Christian ways and understanding that she is not the owner of the money. She's the steward of the money. I think that's where I was going with that because I, I, I met a couple the other day and we were talking about this very same situation. Well, I think this is where the local church comes into play, um, more than podcasts. Many times, even to rent a uh, rent an apartment today, or do things that you're not borrowing money, but for some, but but in some way or shape or form, your credit score um, either opens that door for you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Dollar Savvy Podcast. And here's your host, Sean Adeyemi, President and Senior Financial Planner at SA Capital Advisors. Welcome to the Dollar Savvy Show. I am your host, Sean Adeyemi. Thank you very much once again for joining us. My apologies for being MIA. Things have been a little crazy with the kids going back to school and also being a little below the weather. But we are back and we are back with part two of my conversation with Tim Chalice. If you missed the first part of this interview, you want to catch it at sacapital.ca slash E22 or just go back to the last track on whatever, wherever you listen to your podcast. For this interview, we're talking about what does it mean to be one with your spouse? So I hope you enjoy it. Here's the rest of the conversation. And also note that there is no couple's corner for this episode. But if you're a couple and you're listening to this, I would love to share your story for this money and marriage series we're working on. Please send us an email at podcast at sacapital.ca. So here's the rest of my interview. This is a Dollar Savvy Show. So staying on that thought for a moment. Um, yes, I believe the Bible does put the onus on the man to provide for the family. Uh, but I mean, today with a, a lot's changing today, and now I always say this: don't let what we we should not allow the society today to dictate how we see how we interpret scripture. I do believe scripture still always has to remain authority. But having said that, uh, we're in a modern era where women work as hard as women as men do. Uh, women earn in some cases more than their husbands do, and so in a case where a woman earns the higher income. Uh, on the topic of oneness or on the topic of headship, what should that look like in, in a case where maybe the man's not even working at all for whatever reason, because maybe he doesn't have the skill set. He's trying to work, but he's he's had he's had a tough luck with finding good jobs, not because he doesn't. Uh, I, I don't think I'm excusing the deadbeat husband here yeah. in this case. Um, I'm talking legitimately about a man who works hard. But his earning capacity is so low that the wife in, in, in this in this situation earns a whole lot more and technically is the breadwinner. How should a couple handle a search a situation like that? Yeah. 
Well, biblically, there's clear commands to the husband. The man will not provide, especially for members of his own family. He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that's a man who will not provide, not a man who cannot provide. So, as you said, we're not excusing deadbeat people here. There are people who are disabled or um, unable to work. You know, they had a skill set. That skill set is no longer relevant in society around them, so they can't find job, those sorts of things. There are cases in which a man would not be able to work. So, you know, that's, set that aside. A man who will not work, who refuses to work, he falls under this very terrible judgment. Uh, right. he's, he's worse than an unbeliever, which is to say, look around the neighborhood and you'll see all sorts of people who don't profess Christ and that man is working hard. How is you, and, and to provide for his family, so then how could you as a man who professes Christ do any less? It's just pathetic. You're acting worse than an unbeliever. You're, I mean, that's a horrible judgment to fall under. So I believe a husband needs, a husband, father, um, leader of a home needs to provide as much as he's able, when he's able. Um, meanwhile, there's a clear command, clear call to women to be workers in the home. And I mean, oh, we don't like this, right? But Titus ta- chapter two makes it pretty clear that um, a woman does have a, a primary responsibility in the home in a way her husband seems not to. So um, he appears to have a, a responsibility outside the home that does not fall to her. She seems to have a responsibility within the home that does not fall to him. There's probably different ways of addressing that responsibility. Um, but I think those are the two main principles that, that have to be held to. There's also the nature principle, right? We don't say, we, we don't look only at scripture. We also look at creation God has made and learn lessons from there. And we see that um, God has created women so they can reproduce um, in a way that men can't. Obviously, they can bear children, they can nurse the children, they can care for the children. Um, and men, meanwhile, have been created stronger, in some ways more able then to carry out the, the load of day-to-day working and so on. So when we put all of that together, I still think a man has that primary responsibility uh, to go out of the home, to work, to provide for his family as he's able. If the wife earns more, I think, uh, yeah, I, I'd want to talk that through with, with an actual couple, not, not just in abstract ways, but are you making an idol out of money? Are you, is it really the d- difference between not being able to survive at all and being able to survive? Or is it the difference being, between being able to survive, but also being able to have nice vacations and, you know, enjoy some of the luxuries in life? So, uh, yeah, we, we have to hold tightly to the biblical principles and make sure we're honoring them. Exactly what that looks like, I think there can be a lot of variance. Now, on that, still on that topic, in the events, and I know couples who are exactly in this situation, the both husband and wife, they love the Lord, uh, husband's working, not a great job, but he's earning a, an, an okay income. The wife's also working, and because of her, I guess, expertise and her talent, her her skill set brings her a lot of money, and which in, in, in this case dwarfs what the husband makes. And so now, uh, going, I, going I, I, want, I want to introduce something really that some, some people may find as as controversial is the Bible talks about headship as the husband's, uh, the, it's the husband's job to, to lead the home. In a case where the husband is not the, the higher income earner, not because he doesn't want to, 
what do you think that headship should look like from the man's perspective and from a woman's perspective? Well, the Bible establishes patterns of authority all throughout society. So, I mean, we see that we uh, submit to God. So there's headship and there's submission or however you want to describe the two parts of an authority structure. There's the person who um, has headship, has leadership, and the other person who then honors that leadership. Um, primarily, that's us toward God. God being the, the creator and us being his creatures, but then God delegates authority out to other people. And so we see um, within the civil sphere, God has prime ministers, presidents, members of parliament, whatever it is. And then we as citizens submit to their leadership. We see it in the church where there's elders and then there's congregation and the congregation is meant to submit to their leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and then the same pattern exists in, in marriage. First, um, where the husband is given this position of leadership in the relationship, the wife is then called to submit to his leadership. And of course, that has to be qualified. Um, we have to understand what it means biblically to lead, that you're always leading under the authority of God, that you're trying to lead as God. It's not domineering. It's not running roughshod over. It's not demanding your will be done. It's leading as Christ leads. So, you know, it's controversial um, today because... We're a very egalitarian society, but right. biblically, God wants things done in good order, and so he puts these these structures in place. When the wife earns more than the husband, I don't think that somehow gives her an authority over her husband. He still remains the leader in the home, who in that way is more accountable to God for, for leading in the home. Um, so in a sense, I don't think it really changes anything. Just because she earns more, it doesn't reverse the structure um, of the relationship. The, the structure isn't dependent upon earning. It's not dependent on skill. It's not dependent on intellectual capacity. It doesn't even, it, all of that is completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. That the pattern is based on God's goodwill. And then it's based on the order in which God created man first and then woman. And God didn't do it to, to make men puffed up about themselves, to make women feel bad about themselves, anything. He did it so that there can be order within marriage, within society. I think that's where I was going with that because I, I I met a couple the other day and we were talking about this very same situation and she happens to earn more than he does and unfortunately because of that I find that she's resistance to his his leadership in the home um, now I don't know this guy perfectly but from my from my uh, from the little that I know of him, he's a man who loves the Lord. He's a man who loves his wife and really wants to honor God in how they handle their finances. That's the, actually, that's the reason why they reached out to me. Uh, but I find that the wife, because she earns more, doesn't feel that he has an authority to, uh, I get decide, make decisions on their finances, which I don't think he has the authority, but I think he has the job of leading them and helping them decide together in how they handle their finances. And so the thread I was throwing out, um, I guess you answered my question correctly, is that it doesn't really change anything. Uh, whoever earns more, whether the wife earns more, um, it really doesn't change the, 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 the role that God has placed on, on leadership, on the man to lead. Now that leadership, just like you rightfully said, does not mean uh, lording it over them. It doesn't mean it's a hammer that might will be done. I think it's a servant leadership. It's a leadership that's, that, 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 
that looks to bring the wife along and say, come, let us reason together. Let us work together and make decisions that is in our best interest. Let us um, bring this money. Yes, you're earning more, but let's bring this money and let's let's make a decision together on this. It's on the man to initiate those conversations is to initiate that leadership regardless of whether the wife is earning more or not so you hit that right on the head that was what i was hoping to point uh, make clear to our listeners yeah now any leadership involves delegation and so while he may in an ultimate sense be responsible for the financial well-being of the family that doesn't mean he can't say you are way better at understanding and managing and earning money than i am so you know, that, that's absolutely fine. So he wants to, I hope, fully take advantage of her skills, her ability, her, her, her brilliance in that way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't absolve him of responsibility, but it would be pretty, pretty silly of him not to rely on her. So if he just doesn't understand money well, hasn't proven that to have a good relationship with money, it would be very poor leadership within the marriage not to then lean on her and to take full advantage of that. So Correct. leadership isn't just the doing. It's also understanding your own weaknesses and mm-hmm. relying on, on others in that way. And I think often within a marriage, while the husband, yeah, bears ultimate responsibility, I think it often makes a lot of sense in a, let's call it a, a kind of traditional family structure, I think it makes a lot of sense for him to to give his wife maybe primary responsibility for managing the money. And that's, at least in our marriage, Aileen does far more of the spending than I do. She's the one who's doing most of the shopping. She's the one who's buying clothes for the kids. She's the one who's buying groceries week by week. And so far more of the money passes through her hands than mine. So for me to come along and say, this is how much I think you should spend on groceries. Well, I don't really know that. It makes far more sense for her to be wise there and to, to look at how much she's spending on groceries and then to manage, to manage that mm-hmm. appropriately. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I agree with you 100% on that. Even using my marriage as an example, when we first got married, we used to sit down every month and do the budget and I would, um, and we would talk about how, how we spend, uh, how we should spend our money and, and at that point, she would then execute it. But the more and more my family has grown, uh, we still do the budget together. I still know from a 30,000-foot level, here's where our monies are going. But the execution of it is is primarily her job because she has a pulse on what's needed in the home at any point in time. And so sometimes she needs to cut back on this spending to increase the spending. Sometimes we have obligations as a family in terms of what we need to do for our extended family. So she may say, you know what? Babe, I think uh, here's what we need to do. We, can we take a little bit from this from this allocation to pay this allocation? Because she has a, a better pulse on the day-to-day and the household than I do. So I totally agree with you on that. That yes, they need to do it together. Yes, there needs to be leadership. But even delegating is is important to see whose who's strength is it to really uh, deal with the execution of the, of the money and also who has a better pulse on things in the household. So let's talk about an, an unideal situation. When a spouse not saved and there other is not, uh, how do we deal with this oneness? Does it still apply? What if the unsaved spouse, like how do you, have you ever been in a situation where you've counseled a couple or what would you say to, in, in that situation where one spouse is unsaved, how does that oneness still apply? Yeah, so we're bound together as husband and wife 
regardless of whether one is saved or both are saved or none are saved, that one flesh union and I mean, marriage is a human institution, not only a Christian institution. So people all around the world, every culture has some way of saying these two people are now together. They're now together in a special way that they aren't toward all of society that varies vastly from culture to culture and which is awesome. Um, but whether one is saved or not, that still applies. That, that unity still applies. Um, what Christians get to enjoy is a double unity, right? Where we're not only husband and wife, we're also brother, sister in the Lord. Um, so we're bound together, not just through our, our marriage, but also through our, our faith and uh, ultimately through the Holy Spirit. So um, when one is saved and the other is not, you don't enjoy that second level of unity, that spiritual unity, but you are still husband and wife, still responsible um, to express oneness in your marriage and in the financial component of your marriage. Yeah, so the oneness is irregardless of whether you're a person of faith or not, because marriage, like you said, runs across all cultures, runs across all religions. And so once you're married, you are one before God. And so that means that uh, that oneness does still apply. Now, in a situation where going back to that same question, the, the one spouse is saved and the other is not saved. How and then looking at looking at a woman for 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 a minute there, how does a woman joyfully submit, especially if she disagrees with the way she thinks her husband spend their money, his money? Well, I'd want to say that can be very very difficult, right? So she's a Christian wanting to spend her money in distinctly Christian ways, and understanding that she is not the owner of the money; she's the steward of the money. It's God's money that's been uh, given to her to use for the Lord's purposes. Um, her husband sees the world very differently. That would be very difficult. So I don't want to, to take away from that. On the other hand, um, the fact that he's not a believer does not change the relationship. It doesn't make her the, the head of the home, doesn't give her that position of leadership within the marriage. So um, she's still, as, as long as he's not being outright sinful, he's not violating the laws, he's not calling upon her to violate the laws, then she's... Um, I'd say she still ought to cede to her husband's leadership and to do it with whatever joy she can find. Um, the Bible uh, calls the, the, the Bible is clear that a, 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 a believing wife cannot divorce an unbelieving husband just because he doesn't believe. Um, to the contrary, she's supposed to live toward him with a gentle and, and quiet demeanor and really trusting that as she lives in that way, that may even prove the, the force that draws him to the Lord. The, God, the Lord may use that in a special way to convict her husband of his sinfulness and to drive him to faith. So uh, yeah, she still, I think, is in a position there where she can submit and uh, just trust it to the Lord and trust it to his, his keeping. I remember a situation where a wife came to me and uh, she was the one that initiated the conversation and part of the part of the planning process, she really wanted to give more uh, in terms of the, her income, but her husband did not. Uh, he wanted to give less, and he's not he's not saved any um, in this, and he didn't really think it was important. And what I had to tell her in this situation is, yes, I believe the Bible calls you to give, but in this case, I also believe the Bible calls you to submit to your husband. So even though you'd love to give more because the Bible commands you to give, the Bible, I believe you're, you're, you are to submit to your husband. And if he wants to give less, then you have to, at this moment in your life, give less or give whatever he says you should give and pray and hope that somewhere down the road, he's open to giving more. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I think so. There's, there, there are often times in the Christian life where two principles come into conflict. So there you have two principles, right? Give generously, give the first fruits. There's one principle. The second, submit to your husband. Um, and so what are you going to do? How are you going to work with those two principles that are now in conflict with one another? And that's where leadership from Christians or um, relying on other Christians, asking them for their understanding of it. And then just trusting in the character of God, not thinking that, well, if I don't give, God isn't going to bless me in this circumstance. Mm-hmm. Even with a clear mm-hmm. conscience, just say, Lord, you know what I would like to do. You know my heart in this. You know my intentions in this. And yet I'm going to choose to to submit to my husband, to love him, to uh, affirm his leadership in this, and to have that gentle and quiet spirit, right? To um, and, and trust that as I do that, I'll, I'll receive your blessing. And I our God is a loving father. He's not some tyrant who's demanding his 10% or mm-hmm. he's not going to hand mm-hmm. out the blessings exactly. he otherwise would. So I have trust in the character and the fatherly character of God. So so in a situation where it's, it's not even a case where uh, the husband is not just unsaved, but his principles or how he views money is completely wrong, or maybe he even has addictions where he wastes money on things that are ungodly and uh, violates like violates scripture how uh, how should a woman or how should a wife uh, submit in a situation like that where it's uh, he has addictions that are I'll, I'll say probably in this case maybe ruining their lives spending their money on gambling uh, sometimes he goes to on holy places and I'm not even talking about just going to a club I'm talking about really um, stuff that I would not want my kids to hear and spending his money on those things. How does a woman submit in a situation like that? Because I see a lot of that and it's, it's, it's hard to see, but what advice would you give? Well, I think this is where the local church comes into play um, more than podcasts in the sense that I would want her to go and speak to the elders of her church and to appeal to them for wisdom and for, mm-hmm. you know, is there somebody who can speak to her husband and plead with him or someone who, who he respects as a spiritual authority who may be able to go and say, my friend, I need you to listen to this. And, you know, those sorts of things. I think there are ways that can be handled. Uh, there are ways culturally that can be handled. Um, some cultures would um, have means through which she could appeal to somebody else in a in a people group or something and maybe make her case known. And, you know, in, my background is totally individualistic, but many people's background is more communal. There may be ways she can kind of take things up a chain there that would be uh, meaningful. I'd want to distinguish between a husband who's doing something illegal and a husband who's doing something immoral. Um, if he's doing things the Bible absolutely strictly forbids, so he's telling her cheat on your taxes, I think she says, no, I absolutely will not. Why? Because there's a higher authority over the husband. He's not the ultimate authority in her life. He's under right. the authority of government. He's under the authority of God. Um, the government is not going to say you may not spend your money at filthy things, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you know, uh, somewhere in there, you're just hitting these, these areas. It's, that's very, very hard where the Bible or government says you must not do that. Then she must, her submission to her husband is actually saying, no, I will not do that. When it comes to immorality and things that that's very, very hard. And even more hard if she's the one who's earning the money or some of the money and he's frittering it away through, through things. So I think appealing to other Christians for counsel, for guidance, for prayer is very, very important there. But, um, some people just have very 
difficult burdens to carry through life. And for some, they may determine that's a burden I'm just going to need to carry. And, um, right. you know, looking forward to the day that the Lord heals all things, including that. <clears throat> yes, yes. Uh, it's because because of the line of my work um and it's weird um i i get a lot of this a lot of these questions are coming from women who have asked me these questions and i have i have actually redirected some of them back to the local church to um in some cases when i know they're not going to a really biblically sound church i'll i'll, I'll tell them you know what first of all you need to find a very biblically sound church and then you need to find biblically sound uh mentors uh women uh, who would sort of guide you and and carry you along because it's a difficult situation. I know it's it's hard to answer every question correctly on a podcast because there's so many nuances that can apply to each circumstance and each marriage and each each person going through these issues. But I, I believe the fundamentals and the principles of submission and oneness are, apply in any of these cases, regardless of how you look at it. And to allow to ensure that uh, the Bible is the final authority on these things. Um, for instance, the example you just gave, like in a case where the spouse, the husband um, wants the, the, the wife to cheat on the taxes, she's going to have to say no to that because uh, in this case, you are one, one it's, it's unbiblical to cheat on your taxes. And then two, it's illegal to cheat on your taxes. So those, those are two levels of authority that even though the husband has authority over her as a headship in, in some context, but in this context, because it defies the, the it defies scripture and it defies the, the law of the, of the land, she has to defy her husband in a situation like that. But um, in immoral situations uh, where he's going to strip clubs, is is uh, spending the money on gambling and clubbing, and um, maybe in some cases even other women, uh, I think that's where a lot of wisdom is needed to help counsel her through through those things. Yeah, and let's be clear, where there are certain circumstances, if he's committing adultery with that money or something, then she has other... You know, the Lord does allow divorce in certain cases, such as where there is adultery and so on. So I'm not saying a woman has to be locked in through any amount of depravity her husband may unleash upon her or upon their marriage. So, um, you know, be clear there. Um, but there are those situations in between where money is being wasted or frittered away or used unwisely or even used for things that are hurtful to her. And that, that's where that's where life can be very, very difficult and where... Um, you really do just have to rely on the wisdom of other people, other Christians, and just keep looking to eternity that this light and momentary affliction in this light and momentary affliction we're right. awaiting the eternal weight of glory. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, let's, let's talk about credit for a minute. We, we live in a society where sometimes even maintaining a roof over your head requires good credit. And each person is responsible for building and maintaining their own credit. How should couples approach this if one spouse isn't earning enough so it begins to affect the other's credit because maybe bills are not getting paid on time or um, their or bills are not getting paid at all. And so there's collections and there's issues. How should spouses handle situations like that? Yeah, so credit, credit scores, etc. are important if you're well, especially if you're trying to borrow money. Um, I don't know that, I don't think God really cares much about our, our credit score, but he certainly does care about our hearts, right? And 
in some way, your credit score may be a reflection of your heart, right? Um, if your credit is very, very poor, maybe that reflects on the fact that you're spending too much money, you're spending money poorly, you're not a man or woman of your word, so you're saying you'll pay things back and you don't. Um, so credit score is, <laughs> I mean, it is, it's just a quantifiable uh Thing, but in some ways, it does show what is not quantifiable, which is the state of your heart and your relationship toward money. So um, when it's affecting somebody else, I think there's a, a sense of you're doubly responsible now, right? That through your spendthrift ways, through your lack of care, through your immorality in terms of saying, you know, pay to all what is owed to them, right? Revenue to whom revenue is owed, Um you're not doing, you're not being a person of your word. And now that was reflecting poorly on someone that makes you doubly liable in the eyes of the Lord, I think, to uh, allow mm-hmm. your sin to overflow to the person you're supposed to love the most and care for the most. Yeah. In, in situations like that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I usually, if there are issues paying the bills where one's um, credit is affecting the other, then in some cases, the, the, the couple or the spouse in this case, who is the one good with money may need to look at their household expenses and see okay what can i do with my own income on my own end of the of of the spectrum if if this is what my income can carry are there things we can cut out of our family budget so that this does not continue to affect us as a family like you know if 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 it means my income pays at least our rent and maybe a few other bills then the rest of it has to go. Um, I know that it creates, um, it makes life, it may make life a bit more difficult because certain things, maybe, for instance, you had two cars, you may have to sell your car so that you don't have the the, the expense of, of paying for gas and car insurance and those things. But I, in some cases, recommend, you know what, if, if your spouse is not on the same page with you, does not want to come together to be financially responsible, you have to look and see based on your income, uh, what can you be responsible for and how can you do that in a responsible way without getting into credit issues? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, credit, I, I've gone decades without really caring about my credit score because I don't like to borrow money. So a credit mm-hmm. score is doesn't mean anything really unless you're somehow needing money needing credit to be extended to you so but i'm even i'm even thinking of credit in a, in this in, a, in this situation credit score because many times even to rent a uh, rent an apartment today or do things that you're not borrowing money but for some but but in some way or shape or form your credit score um either opens that door for you or it means you have someone else has to co-sign a place for you because you have bad credit so, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm not a big fan of credit just like yourself. There, I think there are situations where it's, it's, it's prudent, it's wise, you can use credit, but um, I'm very, very, very conservative on the use of credit. However, I also understand that in a society today, credit scores are important for things other than just getting credit financially. They're important for holding down a job. In some, in, there are some jobs that you need to have a good credit standing. For, some, for, for example, there are some jobs that need certain security clearances to hold those positions. And if I need a good credit score, not just need, but need to maintain one over time, a good credit score, then it means I need to do whatever I need to do to keep my credits um, 
good. So I'm even approaching it from that angle of more, okay, do what you need to do to pay your bills on time, uh, take care of your expenses where it doesn't affect your credit, not because you wanna, we want to go borrow money, but because your life as it is requires that you have a good credit score. Okay. You know more about that than I would. So it's been a long time since I've applied for a job and uh, I've never had a job where a credit score has come into play. But I mean, it makes sense because Again, if you look at it through Christian eyes, you can see that in some way, your credit score very likely does reflect your heart. If you're out going to Best Buy and getting whatever credit they offer you and buying a TV on credit and not paying it back, that's not just a financial issue, right? That's a spiritual issue. That's spiritual a reflection issue. of how what you think you need to be happy in life, where you think joy will come from, how you regard money, and all those things are all bound up in that that score then to some degree, you know, to some degree. Yes. To some degree. I definitely agree with that. Okay. Now uh, a couple more questions here. Wedding season is right around the corner. Um, I'm already starting to get invitations on, on, on weddings happening. Uh, what advice would you give couples considering marriage when it comes to money? Uh, I know some, I'll give you an example. I know some young people who want to wait to get out of debt before getting married. Um, and what do you think about that? <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I did premarital counseling for one or two of your brothers, but uh, <laughs> I'm hoping there's no passive aggressive questions in here. Um, I know to, for context, I know your family have gone to church with two of them over time, currently go to church with one of them and uh, love the Adiyami family dearly. And those two brothers have been very uh, precious to me. Um, yeah, I, I hear a lot of, I think, pseudo-Christian principles being applied to marriage now that I don't think the Bible allows us to make law out of. So, um, and, and I think they apply unequally across different cultures. So I hear a lot of people saying you must be out of debt before you get married. You must be out of debt and have a home before you're married. You must be out of debt and have a career-type job and have a home before you get married and all that. You won't mm -hmm. find that scripturally. We have that luxury today. People get married very late and, and all of that. But um, biblical times, people got married very young. But of course, they were marrying into family units and into generally like established family type positions and all of that. Um, you're not going to find the Bible saying get out of debt before you get married. But you will, um, you will find wisdom principles that maybe tell you at the very least, you should be very honest about what kind of debt you're carrying into life, what kind of financial prospects you're carrying in, and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I want couples to be very, very open. I don't want a couple to get married, and then she finds out, oh, you got like $75,000 worth of high-interest <laughs> credit card debt. You just said you had some debts. Now I'm finding out what that actually means. And now I'm going to have to work for years just to, just to, to be able to overcome that. All my money is going to go to paying off your TVs and all that kind of stuff. So having that transparency in the, the pre-marriage counseling phase, not just to talk generally and vaguely, um, but to talk very specifically, I think is very, very important. I mean, the same is true of in-laws, right? It's not enough to say, yeah, we're going to care for my parents someday or we're going to keep involved in my parents' lives. You need to talk about what that looks like. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is especially pertinent in a place like Toronto where so many marriages are cross-cultural. So you're bringing right. in these totally different assumptions of financial, how you relate to family and extended family. Um, you know, from 
I've seen people who have gotten married and like on one side of the family, they're like, my parents have said that if they run out of money, just don't ever think about them again. They'll just kind of live their own life. And you know what, whatever you do, it would be very insulting for my parents if we ever offered them money. And the other spouse was like, just so you know, <laughs> we're supporting my parents someday too. And it's like these, these sorts of conversations need to be part of our pre-marriage discussions right? even more in a very multi, multicultural environment like this. Yeah. So should a person be comfortable with the amount of debt their fiance, fiance has before going to marry them? Because we're talking about transparency here. So in a situation where, okay, you know what? Yeah, we need to be transparent. They go through counseling. And um, okay, so let's talk about what we owe, what we have, assets, liabilities, and oops, he has this huge amount of debt. Uh, I don't think I want to marry you anymore. In our pre-marriage, we actually have the couples write out not just how much debt, but like what is the nature of the debt. And we don't need to see that, but we want them to see that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's much like other discussions. You should probably have discussions about sexual history, things like that. And that's awkward and that's hard. And that's, you know, that's, that's a difficult conversation to have. But you need to have this conversation so you're not springing surprises on somebody in marriage. And it's a way of building unity. Um... I think finances is much the same. You've got to have total transparency so there aren't mm-hmm. surprises. Like you don't want to have those, oh, I didn't know about, I didn't know this about you moments. Um, and those moments where you feel like if I had known this, that would have changed. Because I can see if you're going through that, that engagement type stage and you find out she is carrying or he is carrying this mammoth amount of debt. And not only that, like this is the worst kind of debt. This person has shown just an utter disregard for even basic principles of financial money. That's the kind of thing where you think, well, maybe this person isn't going to make an ideal spouse. Or maybe I really need to see substantial growth before I'm willing to to link myself to to somebody who's their first, the first thing they do in hard times is go out and just buy all sorts of new stuff and rack up all kinds of debt because life is going to be hard. you know, you need to know what you're getting yeah. into. Yeah. I mean, that answers what my my last question was, was going to be was, should a person refuse to marry someone because of their bad credit or their huge debt load? But uh, just looking at that situation, for instance, uh, sometimes it may not necessarily just be the bad debt that may prevent that marriage going forward. It's just what the mindset behind that debt, if just like you rightfully said, if, if, if somebody, uh, things get hard and all of a sudden they, they start to make very bad financial decisions and okay, you know what, uh, things are hard right now. I'm just going to put $5,000 on my credit card and I'm going to go forget life. Um, forget this whole thing going on and I'm just going to go spend this money. Those are things that yes, it, it manifests itself in money and the debt, but, uh, those are deeper issues that may, in this case, in some cases, prevent that marriage from going forward, or at least delay it till there's some growth. Right, and um, again, behind the quantitative value is this qualitative um, ideology or something. I mean, somehow that number, X number of thousands of dollars in debt, or your credit score is four hundred and fifty or something, like that shows you there's there's something behind that. And Mm -hmm. figuring out what that is, what is the heart issue that's driving up the debt or driving down the credit score. Um, I need to be aware of that when I marry someone because that is part of who they are. They're not, 
it's not like they're that's not a part of their their personality a part of their their strengths and weaknesses that that's part of the package and i need to know what that is so yeah it's important that we understand this and and uh really know who we're marrying and uh, be willing to obviously put up with people's weaknesses um and hopefully bring our own strengths that can help balance those out but yeah yeah, you'd want to be very aware yeah i think uh going back to couples getting married again uh, one is the, the transparency that needs to be there. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, those getting married don't talk about this enough. And then two is also recognizing your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, there are things I'm great at, but my wife is not. Uh, there's some things that my wife is not that um, that it's vice versa. And so understanding that uh, just because someone may not be good at something doesn't mean that they all you all of a sudden um, automatically write them off. It may be that God can use your strength to help that person along. Uh, but underlying that has to be that person's um, understanding that I'm not good at this and I am willing to get your help or your support in this, not a complete denial of of that vice or that weakness. It's it's an understanding that, yes, I have this weakness. Yes, I have this struggle, but I need you to do help us do this because I do not want to continue to be this kind of person. So having that understanding and clarity before marriage, I think is very, very crucial. Um, just before we wrap up, uh, a couple of, uh, if, uh, if you don't mind sharing with us, uh, what are some of your the best financial decisions you made and some of the best financial decisions you avoided. <laughs> yeah. So I've written about this in the past, I guess, but yeah, you know, I think, um, Aileen and I came in to our marriage, not really knowing much about money. So we had never been taught to budget. We had never had, um, really, I mean, we'd seen our parents, our parents, n- neither one had totally blown it or anything, but we just hadn't been instructed. So we had to learn as we went. So, I would like to think we could have gotten more substantial training, maybe just read a book or two and had more established principles that we were agreed on rather than just kind of mm-hmm. taking it as we went. Something I think we did well was we bought a small house. We bought as soon as we could and we bought a small house. So we've got, and we haven't moved. So um, we're still in a small house. It's done fine for us. And uh, hopefully we'll have paid it off in much less time than we otherwise would have. So. I mean, I see some people out there who are newly married and carrying five, six hundred thousand dollar mortgages, and I just don't know how how people Yikes. do it. Um, but I mean, that's living in Toronto. That that may just be reality if you want to buy. But I, I think we did well in buying a cheap home, buying a small home, and just staying there, not thinking we need to be upwardly mobile here and move to to better and better neighborhoods. Um, mm-hmm. Other mistakes, I would think we. You know, we, we started saving um, and putting toward retirement, but probably not as much and as early as we ought to have. Um, and maybe another mistake with that, we haven't really involved someone like yourself, who's an expert in these areas. We've just kind of taken it on our own. And I think the longer we go, the more we realize, yeah, there is, that's, that's a real expertise. And I think it would have been wise to involve somebody else who could advise us uh, mm-hmm. in areas we're not certain of. Um, but then what we've done well, I think we've done our best to give generously, to give substantially, and to escalate that giving over time. So as we earn more over time, hopefully we also give more over time and see that as a way of uh, acknowledging God's God's hand in giving provision. all of it. Yeah, his provision and everything we've ever had is, we're acknowledging it comes from his hand and is a gift from him. So there's maybe Amen. just a few of them. 
Amen. Uh, what books, uh, just before, as we're wrapping up here, uh, we want to be able to give our listeners um, resources and tools um, to help them. A podcast uh, cannot do justice on the issue of money and marriage for any by any means. Uh, the Bible is a, obviously the first the first um, foundation on everything that we're talking about. But what other books out there can you recommend? I have a few that I usually recommend, but coming from you, uh, are there books you would recommend for for those who need help, not just in the, with their money, but also money and marriage or it's not the same topic it's the two separate topics but there's somewhere they overlap yeah so managing god's money by randy elkhorn is my go-to book on money it's helpful it's not too long and it's cheap it's like five bucks in paperback so it's a good place to start if even that is too long for you get the treasure principle by randy elkhorn that really distills it down if you want the bigger version get money possessions and eternity by randy elkhorn so i like him and he always does this thing where he writes a big book then he writes a shorter then he writes a shortest um i think it's a it's a good strategy you get to do the work one time you get three times the results out of it so um beyond that i haven't kept up with some of the more more recent stuff so i would trust your your recommendations there yes uh what i will do at the end of this in the show notes is i will include some of the books that you just mentioned uh, along with a few of my favorites in there as well and um, before we wrap up tim if anybody wanted to get a hold of you uh or wanted to learn more about you how can they do that yeah you can just go to chalice.com or chalice on twitter or facebook or whatever you'll find me there and uh I post daily and hopefully have something worth saying. If you wanted to actually get in touch with me, you could just fill out the form on my site and it would bounce through to me eventually. Uh, one quick note about books. One of the funny things about being Canadian is that almost all the books are written for Americans. So we're always having to do some little tweaks in our minds from 401ks to RSPs Ks. and stuff like that. Yep. But not only that, the tax system there is very differently. So mm-hmm. I think at least four o um, that you can write off some of your mortgage payments or something in the States and home ownership has different benefits than in Canada, etc. So um, Canadian, distinctly Canadian books are a little harder to come by. Um, that speak to our particulars. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, the principles are the same uh, for the most part, but some of the other uh, detailed facts like um, uh, 401ks, IRAs, and RSPs, and TFSAs, and uh, Roth, those are different. And that's the other reason why I often tell um, a lot of my clients that um, those who you listen to, you have to contextualize it. In the sense that um, it has to apply to where you're located, where you're living, and to make sure that it applies for you. And it's actually a smart strategy. Uh, But this has really been a great interview. Uh, Thank you, Tim, for all your thoughts and your comments. Uh, We pray that God continues to bless your work, uh, bless your marriage, bless your home. And uh, hopefully we get to do this again more and more as we equip uh, other believers out there and encourage them in, in what God has called us to do. All right, man. Yeah, it was good to talk to you again. All right, Tim. Thank you very much. Take care and have a wonderful day. This podcast is sponsored by GM Travels and Tours. Now, if you feel money is tight and the idea of traveling with your family is out of reach, GM Travels and Tours can help. Serving over 100 plus families to date, GM Travels and Tours specializes in making travel affordable for you. With destinations in Canada to the U.S. and international, your next planned trip could be days away.
One of the things I like about GM Travels is assuming you're, you're planning to travel next year, sometimes it's hard to figure out where the cash for that will come from. Well, GM Travels has the perfect plan to help you make that vacation possible. Use the dollar savvy code TRAVELDSP. Email gamtravelsandtours at gmail.com. That's G-A-M-T-R-A-V-E-L-S-A-N-D-T-O-U-R-S at gmail.com and plan your next family vacation today. GAM Travels and Tours. Travel affordably. So that was the rest of my interview with Tim Chalice. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about Tim's work, you can find it at chalice.com. That's C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or the podcast as a whole, please rate, subscribe, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. Till next time, this is The Dollar Savvy Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Dollar Savvy Podcast. You can find us at sacapital.ca slash podcast. And you can reach us at 1-888-365-8883, extension 377. Or send us an email at podcast at sacapital.ca. You've been listening to the Dollar Savvy Podcast. I'm your host, Show Adeyemi. Thank you. Mission Media.